Exodus 34. God has a name. Verse 5, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. He's with Moses and he proclaims his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Say gracious. He's not like us. He's gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's where we're going to be today, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God, I pray one more time that as, as we speak about this name Yahweh, the name that became flesh in Jesus, the reason we have a church is because of you, Jesus. We just thank you for this name, the name that changes everything. It meets us where we're at. Thank you, God, you'd meet with your people. For some, we've been doing church for 40 years, and you're awakening things in our heart that we never knew were there, God, to see bigger possibilities of what it means to serve you and be your children. For some, we're new to this church story, and we just need to know that your love is near. We need to know that you're close. So meet with us, God, wherever we're at. Meet with your people so that we could walk into all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, and a healthy church said together. Amen. I'm excited. The Lord has a name or God has a name. It's been a good series. I've enjoyed preaching it. Certainly as a team, we've loved the conversation that it's created in our office. Uh, the conversation is created in our homes uh, with our children. Our children have been tracking the series as well. And it's amazing actually when you start asking your kids what they're learning about Yahweh. It used to be what I would think was just a Jewish kind of name of old. But then we've realized in this series, it's the name God gave himself. Not the one we gave him. Not the one that like the church came up with that gave us to speak about when we speak about God. This is the first time in the Bible, Exodus 34, where we see God name himself. It's as if he's needing to say to Moses, listen, Moses, there are a lot of other names out there, a lot of other details out there, a lot of thoughts people have about me, a lot of assumptions people have made about me. In fact, in those days, it was common to believe that there were many gods. Why would this one be any different? And when he says, my name is Yahweh, it's like a gunshot goes off in history as if to say, the times have changed. Something's taken place that will change humanity forever. Yahweh was a significant moment, and as we realize it was significant in the Bible times, I believe that as it kind of goes off in your heart, it will become significant for you. Yahweh, gracious and compassionate God. He's not like us. You see, what we've done is we've created gods that are just like us. We think God is a slightly better version of us sometimes. We, we, um, we like to think that if God is not like us, then he must, he must improve on us, but he doesn't just improve on us. He's altogether perfect. All right? He is lovely. He's perfect. He's sufficient. And so we're learning about the attributes and the characteristics of God. Today, the title of my message, in honor of the legend that is Tina Turner, who brought big hair to life and is turning 80 years old this year, I believe. The title of my message is, What's Love Got to Hey! What's Love Got like three people in the room are singing and the others are wishing they could. You can. You have permission. You don't need to be perfect. Tina Turner, thank you. What's Love Got to Do With It is the title of my message. I'm going to have some fun with you, but I'm also going to put some faith in your heart if that's okay. Uh, because I believe the church should be enjoyed. Life sometimes is endured, but the church is enjoyed. There is a reality to life that is an enduring reality. It's an invitation to endure, to persevere, to stay the course. We don't get an out on that. It's just what life is. But I want to tell you that the church is the vehicle of hope in the midst of the endurance race that is life. The church is enjoyable. It's life-giving. It's full of soul. It's full of fun. It's full of passion. 
If you came to church today thinking it was just a checkbox, I'm going to light you up because of Jesus, and you're going to go home knowing that it's the best place to be. Amen. Tap your neighbor and say, it's good today. It's good today. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love and faithfulness. The words in Hebrew are hesed and emet. All right, we've been learning a bit of Hebrew in this series because actually when you look at the original language, it kind, of, it, it kind of blows up the idea that we've always just taken as a simple love and faithfulness. Well, we know love and faithfulness sounds good by all means. I'm grateful that Yahweh is loving and faithful. But what is it essence, what does it mean? Like what does love and faithfulness mean? Is it the same as my love and faithfulness, which kind of feels good today? And I'm, I'm here when I feel good to be here. I'm faithful to the degree that it suits me. And then I'll check out. I'm faithful until it gets tough, and then I'm gone. I'm in this job until my boss doesn't kind of see the value in me, and then I'm eject button, ninja bomb, I'm out of there, all right? I'm in this marriage until all of a sudden, and then I'm just, I'm not saying that the decisions we make are right or wrong. I'm not here to judge your decisions. I'm just saying that we live in a world that is quick to kind of get out, but we serve a God that is faithful to the end. This is good news for us, because even when we're not, He is, and you're going to see that today. But the words are herset and emet, and the words are love and faithfulness, but there's depth to these words that you don't see at face value. In fact, the word herset, I believe, is one of the hardest to translate Hebrew words. Some words have like simple translations, right? But when it comes to chesed, it's like, it's like they couldn't put it into an English word. They couldn't get it to make enough sense. They used the word love, and for sure that is a great attempt at it, but there's more to it. So let me just kind of speak a little bit about this love for a little while. It speaks of steadfast love. Steadfast love. Not just love. Not just the feeling of love or kind of the emotion of love, but the steadfastness of love. It's a different kind of love. It's, it's not the love we're used to. It's a love that only God gives the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. That's good news. He's not limited in steadfast love. Like I got a little bit until I get over you and then I'm going to book out and you're going to have to figure your own way out on earth. No, he is abounding in steadfast love, which means whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Thursday night or Saturday evening, doesn't actually matter what day of the week it is or what you're up to or how you're responding to what you've been entrusted to in this world, his love is steadfast. It is like a line that just does this overflowing wherever it meets you. You do this, you do this, you do this. God just meets you with a steadfast love. Steadfast. It also speaks of unfailing. Another translation of this word chesed is an unfailing love. It doesn't tire. That's, that's, that's mind-blowing. You could pause there for just a moment and think, like, how is that even possible? How does his love not tire? My love tires. My only reference to love is a love that seems to tire, and then it chooses when it's tired. You know that one, like, from the marriage days, like, you know, when your marriage is struggling? Like, just choose love. It's true. It's good. That's the only way we see ourselves through the hard season. But choosing is hard. Choosing is difficult. Well, God isn't just choosing love like just to suck. He, he, he is love. He's unfailing. It's not, a, it's not a choice. It's just who He is. That's power. It's just this abundance. There's just excess, which means that even if you aren't loving God, His steadfast, unfailing love is still loving you. It means if you don't make it to church for a few weeks because you're going through some stuff, I encourage you, come to church. If ever you're going through things where you just feel like, man, that's the last place I want to be, let me encourage you, it is the best place for you to be. 
Stick around, stick it out, not because of what we're going to do to fix that, but because of the steadfast and unfailing love that is preached here. Just realize his love is steadfast, it's unfailing, there's no shadow, you won't light up, mountain, you won't climb up. You like that song? What's the next line? He's coming after me. His love is unfailing. It is pursuing you. It's coming after you. You may be running from it. It's running toward you. You, you, you may be hiding from the love of God. His love is coming to find you. There's something so profound about this word, chesed. God, I like the idea that you're loving and faithful, but I, I struggle to understand that it's steadfast and unfailing and never-ending. It's chesed love. It's not like the way we love. He is abounding in chesed. It's also a covenant love. We're going to speak about that in just a moment. The word emet is where we get the word truth from. And so it has this application of truth. In fact, you know, if a preacher's preaching kind of good and you like what he has to say or she has to say, and in some churches you would hear people just shout out, amen, right? Because they're agreeing with the truth that is doing something in their hearts. And, and, and that should be the case. Now, I'm not saying like you get brownie points for shouting me down, but it does make me kind of feel like God is up to something in your heart. And so when we preach something that sort of sparks something and you're sitting there going, yeah, this is good. This is like more than I, and you're, you're thinking, man, I would love to just shout amen right now, but I'm not sure like everyone else is thinking, permission to shout a, come on, one person in the crowd. So I'm going to work with you all day, even if it is just you and I. Because amen means so be it. It's identifying with truth and claiming it as your own. And so if I declare God's love is not like yours, God's love doesn't fail like yours, God's love doesn't flake like yours, God's love is steadfast and unfailing and sure and certain, a church that was excited to receive that love would say together, amen. <laughs> Tina would be proud. This is why I love the fact that churches pack out in times that are troubling. Yeah, I mean, it'd be awesome if the church was packed out every time. I mean, for sure, that's what we believe in. It's the best place to be. Why would you be anywhere else? Like, this is where my week starts. But the church seems to pack out in extreme measures when life isn't going so well. Why? Because this is where love is steadfast. It's not relying on the economic times being better. It's not relying on the nation being stable. It's not relying on a leader saving us. It's leaning into the love that sustains us. And so when we step into a church that is consistent and steadfast and unfailing, and we know subconsciously, intuitively, we know that the church should house the hope of the world. And so when things aren't good out there, we intuitively know it's going to be good in here. And that's the truth, friends. And this is the power of the gospel, Yahweh is steadfast. He is chesed and emet. The word for faithful is true or trustworthy. It won't let us down. Now, in English, there's, a, there's a, like a name for what they do here. I forget what it's called. But what they do is they put in the English language and literature, they put two nouns back to back. And basically why they do it is that the one would like smash up against the other and blow it up and the other would smash up. And so they put them back to back. It's not typically how we would word things, but now and again they would do that to make one help the other and the other one help this one. Does that make sense? So here's what it's trying to do for us over here. God's love is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is his love. One props up the other. 
And so when we look at the words abounding in love and faithfulness, it's not just that he's fully loving and sometimes faithful. It's that his fully loving is his always faithful. And it's that his always faithful is fully loving. God is all these things. One, one writer said the word chaset was all the positive attributes of God captured in a thought. God is abounding in every positive attribute of who he is. He's not in limited supply. He's not reserving it for those that have been doing this for 25 years and giving portions to those that have just arrived. Or one day when you figure out how this God thing works, I'll give you a little bit extra of who I am. No, he is abounding. There is so much of him that if we would just open our hearts to receive, we'd be filled up in this moment. One of the greatest transitions in my life was realizing I don't come to church to give to God. I come to church to take from Him. That's a powerful thought, friends. That means that what He has is more than what I can receive. And so I come and I receive everything that I can contain, and still there is excess of Him. Amen? And so you just receive. If you need, if you need a breakthrough in your business, you just start to ask God for the courage to walk the journey toward that breakthrough. If you need healing for your life, you just trust God to start to walk you through the healing. You see, there is excess of Him. I'm not saying that He's a push-button kind of system. I'm just saying there is excess in Him. And we need to realize that we come to church not to give to God. It's our privilege to worship and sing. And it's our response to give generously in finance. But he's the beginning of the blessing, not us. Chesed and emet. It's all over the Bible. Psalm 89, it literally, this, this, this love and faithfulness shows up all over the show. If you're struggling to know that God is loving and faithful today, I want to tell you, it's kind of not just a little bit of who He is, it's all of who He is. He's always loving and faithful. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever in Psalm 89. It says, with my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known. That's what we're doing in worship through all generations. I will declare that your love, not mine, your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. In other words, it's been established, it's who you are, I can't change it. Verse 28, God then speaks. He says, I will maintain my love, not their love, my love to him forever. He's speaking about the coming of Jesus. And my covenant with him will never fail. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. God can't help but be who he is. And so you may be having a day that feels like God's love is not near and it's not real. And his faithfulness is not present in this moment. Listen. I understand life. We're going to talk about pain for just a moment today because it's real. All of us have been through some part of life that is painful, some perhaps more than others. Some perhaps it feels like, why always us? I want, to, I want to speak into those spaces today because the church isn't a vehicle that pretends that doesn't exist. It's just that we carry the capacity of faith to access what God has amidst the pain that life has. It's different. It's not the same thing. It's not a quick fix to the pain. It's a journey of God's presence in the middle of it. There's something powerful about acknowledging the reality of life, but still living with the promises of heaven. Like there's just something powerful about this. And so maybe you say, Dill, I love this loving faithfulness thing. I get, I'm excited. I get fired up. But I lost a dad when I was really young, and it still hurts. I want to say to you, sir or ma'am, that our hearts are with you, and we don't expect you to get over that in a moment. That's not the church's message. Perhaps you're journeying through a diagnosis right now that, if you're honest, just doesn't seem fair. 
Or you have a friend that's journeying through a diagnosis right now. And as a pastor, I don't want to pretend that that doesn't exist and say, no, God is just going to, no, God is with them in this moment. And we're going to trust together that God is going to help us see his love and his faithfulness, his chesed and amet, even when it doesn't make sense. I'm learning so much about God and pain and yet his promise still exists. And so we have love and faithfulness. He won't let us down. Let's talk a little bit about covenant love for just a moment. Covenants were a big deal in the old days, all right? Covenants were like the way people and God signed off on things. In fact, people would have covenants, and then God would have covenants with people. We, we know a little bit about this. But a covenant was typically a hybrid bet between like a, a kind of personal promise or a relational promise and a contractually abiding agreement, right? Agreements. So nowadays, we just do contracts. They're black and white. They're bland. If you don't do this, I get this. If I get this, you don't get that. You know the story, right? But in those days, there was far more life in those moments, and that life is what made them covenants, right? There was a personal element to contracts. It wasn't just like black and white that governs the outcome. It was, I'm buying into the outcome. I'm not just putting there as a protective mechanism. I'm stepping into it as a part of my life. And so when God cut covenants with people, he wasn't just saying, hey, if you do this, I'll give you that. If you... He was saying, I'm buying into it. I'm going to be the solution for the moments that you can't bring them. And I'm going to trust that, well, I'm going to let you trust me in this story. And one of the biggest covenants is with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And this is what he says to Abraham. He's making a covenant with Abraham. It's like a, it's like a handshake with a binding contract all in one. Tap your name and say, that's a good deal. Most of you aren't sure you want to claim it right now because we're so used to signing deals that go wrong, but that's because we're contractual people, not covenant people. Let me talk about a covenant God. I will make you into a great nation. He's talking to Abram. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Abram's like just standing there. What? He just got called out, and God just promising something. Like Abram did nothing. And God's just declaring, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and ever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed by you. Now, if you know the story, just beyond this moment, there's like this weird moment in time, Genesis 15, where in the Old Testament, they cut covenant. And how they would do that is they would, they would slice animals in half. The animals would kind of die. There'd be blood. And if, you, if you're sensitive to this stuff, I apologize. But this is how it went down back then. We just don't know about it these days. It just seems weird. But it was a big deal. And so they would cut animals in half, birds, goats. There was a ram involved with Abraham, which is a picture of Jesus in time to come. And they would slice them in half and they would part them ways. And then the two parties that were going to enter this covenant together would walk back and forth in a kind of ritual, if you liked, to show their commitment to their side of the covenant. It was like a big deal. Nowadays, it's like, you're in? Yes. Okay, sign the dotted line and you just hope it works out. If it doesn't, what do you do? Get a good lawyer. Truth, right? It wasn't like that then. There was no out. I'm in, and you're in. And what they were committing to is if that one never held up their end of the deal, there would be blood spilt to pay for it. Now, I hope you can see by now that this is all pointing toward Jesus now. All right? Someone's got to pay the price for the outcome that's been promised. So what happened with the Abram story, and this is what I love about God's love and faithfulness, the abounding nature of his love and faithfulness, is in the Abram story, he puts Abraham to sleep when they cut the covenants. 
It's like Abraham standing there, I'll bless you and you'll be a blessing. And he's getting all fired up about the journey God's called him to. And then God says, all right, Abraham, let's do this thing. And it says, Abraham in his sleep had a vision. And in the vision, he saw God as a, as a burning pot. We'll get into the kind of detail of that another time. But as a burning pot, he saw God, in essence, walking through the middle of the sacrifice. Where was Abraham? Sleeping. And God walking back and forth in the middle of the sacrifice. Because God committed to the covenant without Abraham even being involved. Why is this powerful? Because when God cuts covenant, listen, listen, listen. He doesn't expect you to uphold your end of the deal. He knows you won't. But he's committed to upholding his end of the deal. Why? Because he's abounding in love and faithfulness. And so when I'm not abounding in love and faithfulness, and I'm kind of questioning God, and I'm disappointed with God, which are all natural human feelings, by the way, if you've ever had that feeling, you're just human. You're not abnormal. There's not something wrong with you, and God isn't judging you. He's still upholding his end of the equation. He's still walking through, committed to his side of the covenant. Why? Because you're not the one who's abounding in love and faithfulness. You don't got chesed and emet. God does. And the power of the gospel is that God came to us. His chesed and emet came and found us when we had nothing to give to Him. And still does. Still does. God's covenant love is such that He holds His side of the story up even when we don't uphold ours. One of the, quote from the quotes from this book I love is, the rest of the Old Testament post this Abraham moment and most of the Bible is kind of about Yahweh faithfully keeping up his end of the covenant with Abraham's family while Israel failed miserably on their end. How many of you know God has been good to us? Covenant love. It's different to our kind of love. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about Jesus and us. Jesus and us. The Old Testament is referred to as the Old Covenant. This covenant with Abraham was the promise of God to uphold his side of the story regardless of Abraham upholding his. All right? In the New Covenant, Jesus becomes what Abraham could never be. Jesus fulfills, that's why it's called the New Covenant, all right? Because he comes and fulfills to us what Abraham could never. Why is this powerful? Because we keep trying to play the role of those that serve God like Abraham of old, but we're living under the grace of Jesus, which means he played the role for us. We're living in a work that we never did. It's called a new covenant. So Abraham, let me read it to you. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, and God uses Jesus to bless the earth through him. Listen to how this writer writes it. Jesus came to do what Abraham and Israel were supposed to do, but he could never. He came to bless the world. Say bless. The word bless is the word barak. The word barak pictorially is the extended hand of God with a cuff on the end. You know when people pray for their children and they curve their hand and they put it on their child's head? It's like just if someone says, lay your hands on my head, naturally that's what we do. There's a curved, extended hand. That's what the word barak actually means. It's the extended hand of heaven held against your head so it will bless you. Jesus came as God's extended hand of heaven to bless us. All because thousands of years ago, Yahweh made a promise. Don't you just love that? Why did he come? Because we showed up five times and we sang three big songs and we kicked out with praise and God showed up. No, God showed up because he made a promise that he would. 
He showed up because even if we aren't, He still is. Thousands of years ago, Yahweh made a promise. When Israel failed, Yahweh was faithful. Even before that, when Adam failed, Yahweh was faithful. And when you and I failed, God is still faithful to bless and to heal and to free and to save. Jesus takes our failure, millennia of broken promises, and he drags it to the cross, absorbing in it his, the death of it and breaking its hold over humanity through his resurrection. This is why the writers of the New Testament are constantly quoting from the old. For them, the gospel started in Genesis 12, not Matthew chapter 1. Yahweh made a promise, and he was faithful to the point of death, and he's still not done. He will keep all of his promises, and Jesus will return to see to it. And it's because of Yahweh's love and faithfulness, his chaset and amet, that we can look forward to a world. Let me say this again. We can look forward to a world set free from the entropy of death. And we can hope for this, plan for it, and bank on it. Now, when I say hope, I don't mean wishful thinking. Like, I hope I get a parking place quickly. I hope the next Star Wars movie is really good. Please, Jesus. I hope she texts me back. I hope I get a tax refund. Good luck with all that. But the scripture writers are talking about this. A hope that is the absolute expectation of the coming good based on the character of God. Can I read that over you, church? Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good based on how we respond in situations, how faithful we are with our treasure, how good we are at serving and pleasing God. No, based on the character of God. Love and faithfulness abounds regardless of you and I. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good based on Yahweh's character. It's bedrock trust that no matter how many wrong turns we make or setbacks we face, we can sleep soundly tonight. I believe, honestly, I believe as I read this this morning at 8.30, God started to tell me some people aren't sleeping. I know that may seem simple for a bunch of us that are, but if you're not sleeping, I'm praying that this Yahweh this hope, this promise that fulfills its end of the equation, even when you don't, will give you sleep tonight, sir. Will give you rest tonight. No matter how many wrong turns we make or setbacks we face, we can sleep soundly tonight because we know that one day Yahweh will eradicate evil forever. He will remake this world into a garden city, a second Eden, and He will bless all the peoples of the earth through His Son, Jesus all because Yahweh is abounding in love and faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, If we are faith, faithless, He remains faithful. All right, back to the pain question. Remember when God said to Abraham, remember this is a covenant God, let's, let's pick up the flow. God is a covenant-keeping God. He makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to use you for things you could never dream of. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. You're going to be a conduit of heaven on earth, Abraham. Covenant. Abraham messes up. Abraham questions God. Abraham takes life into his own hands. If you're going to read the story, it was nothing, but a, nothing like a walk in the park. What was the covenant? What was the promise? I will still bless you, and I will still be a blessing through you. Notice how. Can I help you, church? Come on, let's talk honest for just a second because I know you're wanting to hear some of this. Notice how God never said to Abram, I'm going to make life perfect. 
You see, sometimes in our view of God, let's just talk straight, faithfulness looks like no trouble for me. Faithfulness looks like this always ends the way I perceive it should. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Hey, man, I'm in the same boat that you are. I want the best outcome, and I believe in the best outcome. But God never said to Abraham that it was going to be easy. In fact, you go and look at Abraham's life. It was nothing like that. What he did say to Abraham is, I will bless you, and I will turn evil for good. And I'll take situations that the devil intended to harm you with where you couldn't make sense of it and pain came too soon and this happened to you and this changed you and I'll take all the things that the devil is trying to break you with and I will use it to build you and I'll bless you. See, my end of the equation, God says, is that I promise I will be a blessing to you and I promise that what comes to you from God will be good. You know the story of a few years ago when, I don't tell it often because we're living in the blessing of its aftermath now, but, you know, our daughter was in hospital and she just went in for a routine up. I'll fast track to the end of it. And it turned out to be a week and a bit in ICU and pretty scary. It was probably for me as a dad, one of the most scary moments of my life. It's funny how you can't plan for those moments. They just hit you, it's like a truck. It just hits you off guard. And I remember there was this one moment when the surgeon that was assigned to us in the whole procedure actually lost his confidence. That's not a good moment. Like we had been told he's the this and he's the that and he's the best. And the next time I walked into ICU for about, not ICU, the, the surgical ward to hold her as they put her down and put her out, put her down, put her out to operate on her for like the fifth time in three days because they couldn't get it right. They couldn't clean up the infection. And I saw a second and a third surgeon in the room. What are you doing here? We just here to back him up. I'm like, this is not good. And this thing was all spiraling out of our control. I remember feeling like I've lost total control. I might even lose one of my loved children. And I was standing outside of an ICU ward and I was smiling because it's all I could choose to do. And I was smiling at my daughter as all the hands were getting involved and trying to fix the situation of panic. Tess was, honestly, it was just for a mom a nightmare. And I was standing there, and the surgeon, when things calmed down, he stepped outside. He looked at me, and I said to him, Doc, I just want you to know my daughter is in good hands. And you know what he did? He looked back at me, and he said, Thank you, Dylan. I said, I'm not talking about yours. Pain? Promise. Not the absence of, the presence of. Not without its tragedy, just with its triumphs. I came here to tell some people today that you've been through unreasonable pain in your life. You have no answers for it. You still have questions about it. And it's okay to live with so much of that pain. It's not wrong. No one's wishing you out of it before it's time. Let God heal you. Let God restore you. But I came here to tell you that didn't come from God. Just because it happened, it doesn't mean it's from Him. And God is using that, I believe, in this moment to restore in you a joy despite the pain, despite the infliction, Despite the diagnosis, despite some of the outcomes that you wish hadn't happened, I'm here to declare to you with a confidence in my heart, God is still chesed and ametz. He's still loving and He's still faithful and He won't leave you in your pain. And maybe it's time to just hand that over to Him. God, my eyes are stuck on this. I feel like God says it's time to shift them onto this, the promise keeper, the one who sent Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise 
It didn't get easier for Paul, but he lived in the fulfillment of God's grace. It wasn't easy for the early apostles. It's not going to be easy for you and I. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, Link Church. I have overcome the world. You see, when we look at what we think the world has overcome, we lose heart that Jesus has the final say. Jesus has overcome the world. That's why I lift his name up. Not because I have to, but because he's here to lift me up. Stand with me this morning.